We continue in our series on Lamentations, in the book of Lamentations, and we've come to chapter 4. So if you turn there with me this morning, and I'm also going to read uh, a little bit later from 2 Kings chapter 25, uh, which tells some of the, uh, is, is the account, some of the story of uh, what's referenced here in Lamentations 4. So you could uh, put, put something in. 2 Kings 25 as well. But this morning, Lamentations 4, uh, verses 12 through 20. And we'll continue two more weeks to to finish uh, chapter 5 in upcoming weeks. Lamentations 4, verse 12. Hear God's holy and fallible word. The lament continues. The kings of the earth did not believe... Nor did any of the inhabitants of the world that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind in the streets. They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Depart, unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. So they fled and wandered. Men among the nations said, they shall not continue to dwell with us. The presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. They did not honor the priests. They did not favor the elders. Yet our eyes failed. Looking for help was useless. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save. They hunted our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were finished, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. They chased us on the mountains. They waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we had said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. And we'll end our reading there this morning. Uh, Back in 1994, the Seattle Sonics of the NBA, and now the the, uh, Oklahoma City uh, team, they were the best team in the league in 1994. They had the best record, uh, the best team by all accounts. Uh, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, uh, if you're a basketball fan. And uh, in the first round of the playoffs, they were the number one seed uh, in all the NBA. They played uh, the lowly eighth seed Denver Nuggets. And the Sonics won the first game. And they won the second game of the five-game series. As expected, and then in what comes up in lists of the, the greatest collapses in sports history, uh, the Sonics lost, or the, or the Nuggets won, we can say it positively, uh, the next three games, uh, and the Sonics lost the series. It's the first time ever an eight seed beat a one seed uh, in the NBA uh, playoffs. So the league had just watched the Sonics uh, dominate the regular season. They won uh, 63 games that year. And then people were left wondering, suddenly, what happened to this great team? How could Gary Payton and Sean Kemp lose to the lowly Nuggets? Um, That reflects something of the disbelief uh, that this chapter here in Lamentations describes of the nations watching Jerusalem go through this spectacular collapse uh, that gives rise to the book of Lamentations. Verse 12, this is how our passage began. The kings of the earth did not believe nor did any of the inhabitants of the world that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, why, would be people, why would people be in disbelief, uh, nations around, looking at what happened to Jerusalem here? Uh, what is the narrator assuming? Well, it's probably in light of 
go back uh, a long ways to uh, God humiliating and destroying Egypt and freeing his, his weak and poor people. Or go back a hundred years, the Assyrians came to uh, destroy Jerusalem and God uh, decimated the Assyrian army and sent them fleeing. And many other examples that we could give of, of God protecting this city. And so watching nations might rightly think, as the Babylonians come and besiege Jerusalem, well, we know how this is going to go again. Uh, but Jerusalem is utterly wasted. It, it can't even put up a fight. Something has changed about Jerusalem. It's, it's become a shell of itself, and it's utterly weak now. And so there's this disbelief. And the passage goes on to take a closer look at some of these factors and failures that led to this tragedy and the people's struggle with those. And so as we take these up this morning, we'll consider some, some parallels and, and uh, parallel struggles that continue in the church today and consider what we can uh, learn perhaps from those as we think about those. Uh, so first, uh, a failure of church leaders, uh, number one on your outline. Look at verse 13. Because of, this is because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. Uh, the book of Lamentations is clear that um, the whole church, the whole nation of Israel is, is guilty, um, has guilt in what brought on um, uh, this destruction of Jerusalem, this judgment of God, but it assigns special guilt to the leaders in Jerusalem. Remember, we discussed a couple weeks ago with, with verse 6 in this chapter that some sins are greater, they're more grievous before God. And that applies to leaders in the church who have more knowledge, more uh, perhaps more responsibility, uh, more potential for harm to others if they do what is wrong. And the failure of the leaders in Jerusalem in the church at that time is described in three ways. Verse 13 goes on to say, uh, they have shed in their midst the blood of the righteous. Now, does that mean the, the priests and the elders and the uh, prophets literally were, were killing people, shedding blood? Uh, perhaps. Maybe it, it's just a reference to their role in bringing on this judgment of God. And so indirectly, uh, they, they brought destruction. And maybe it just points figuratively to some, some other kind of direct abuse of the people that they were supposed to be caring for. And shepherding. Verse 14 gives another illustration of their failure. They wandered blind in the streets. They were blind leaders is, is the metaphor here. It's, it's very much like Jesus accusing the Pharisees of being blind, leading the blind. They're no longer teachers and guides and counselors. They're, they're as useless as, as leaders, as a blind person to, to drive you in a taxi or something like that, to lead you around. And then verse 14 goes on with the final comparison. Uh, they were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Depart, unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. Uh, what, what is this language? This is, this is the cry of a leper. Right? Someone who was ceremonially unclean, and unwell and had to live separate from the people, separate from the towns, and had to call out, depart, unclean, to warn people of their contagious illness and uncleanness. And so it's ironic here. Uh, not only 
Can the, the leaders, the priests, the prophets offer no hope and healing because they're spiritually blind? Contact with them causes sickness, spiritual sickness, even death. But surely this, this all pictures the, the leaders in Jerusalem having abandoned the word of God, abandoned uh, serving the true and living God as servant leaders. They're spiritually blind, they're abusive, they're corrupt. Well, that same sad dynamic and danger persists in the church today uh, at times and in places. Uh, too often we hear of abuse of authority in the church. We hear of great sins and failings and public scandals among those called to, to lead and shepherd God's people. Some of you here this morning have probably been deeply hurt, discouraged by things like that, or you've seen it. You've seen people walk away from the church or walk away from the faith, or churches divide. Christianity Today, the publication, has out a fascinating but very sad podcast I listened to on a, a pastor, author, who founded a, a church in the Northwest, certainly one that many of you have probably heard of. Uh, it grew to a huge size. It, it, it became, in fact, a network of churches. And then it all fell apart when the pastor's sin and abuse and self-enrichment and so on uh, came out. Uh, it was devastating to many people. I just saw last week a new book uh, out that, that Michael Kruger, some of you know that name, has written on abuse, spiritual abuse in the church. It's a continuing reality. There are those church leaders and, and, in fact, entire denominations who have abandoned the truth, who have twisted the entire gospel and nature of the church to, to win the approval of the world or to prosper themselves. This, this is particularly true in what we've come to call the, the prosperity gospel. Uh, preachers enrich themselves at the expense of God's people, at, at the expense of the gospel, at the expense of the glory of God. So this continues to be a sad reality uh, in our world. Uh, but it was the rule in Jer Jerusalem in that time. Uh, secondly, we see a failure of the church as a whole, again referred to in this chapter. Notice in verse 17 in the chapter we have, uh, we go from the narrator speaking uh, back to the, the corporate voice. The people of Jerusalem uh, begin to speak again in, in verse 17. We, us, and so on. And they describe some of their experience. In verse 17, they confess this, Yet our eyes failed, looking for help was useless, and our watching we have watched for a nation that could not save. What were the people doing wrong, as described here? They were desperately looking for help as the Babylonians were closing in, but looking for help where there was no ultimate help. Almost certainly this is a reference to the people turning to Egypt for help as they did over and over again rather than to God. Rather than looking to the promises of God. They were probably following their leaders in doing that, but the whole nation bears guilt for looking beyond their God and his covenant for help and prosperity and safety and so on. It was a common problem for Israel throughout the centuries. Abandoned the true worship of God and pleading with the true God uh, and turned to other nations and other gods. How might we see that or apply that in the church today? Well, not directly. We're, we're not a nation facing you know, threat of invasion as a church and somehow 
you know, tempted to turn to Canada instead of the Lord for help or something like that. But the basic principle here is compromising full faith and trust in God, in your lives. Supplementing your faith with, with trust in things that cannot save. So Christians misplace faith, perhaps, and they compromise what is good and true to you know, place their faith in a political candidate or, or a political party or get all their hopes and fears wrapped up in elections, uh, forgetting that Jesus reigns and his promises are ultimate. Christians misplace their faith when facing stress or pain. They supplement their faith with alcohol or entertainment or sex such that it's not really the grace and promises of God alone that are sustaining them in faith and joy, but it's, it's these distractions and numbing things. This happens in the church even, even subtly when you put your faith in the church itself or in its programs or in entertaining rather than worshiping or in finding security in the numbers of a church or finding security in the theological rightness of a church in and of itself. Anything other than humble faith in God himself. It happens when you put your faith or, or hope implicitly on a, on a leader in the church. And, and his gifts or charisma or fame or whatever it is. Anything other than humble faith in God himself. I think sometimes to connect the, the first point and the second point on your outline. Sometimes it's the failure of leaders in the church that then also exposes... Your misplaced faith, the misplaced faith of the people in the church. Sometimes the hopes and joys and faith of the members is more wrapped up in, in, in the personality of a leader or the impressive and busy programs or the culture of a church rather than in Jesus himself. And then when those things crash, what, what is left? So we have a failure of, of the leaders and a failure of the, the people in general. The next couple of verses further describe the Babylonian army breaking in, filling the city, chasing everyone down. There's no escape. And it all leads up to the greatest tragedy of all of these breakdowns in verse 20. And, and I would suggest the implicit question in verse 20, the implicit question at this incomplete part of the story as to whether there's some failure of God and his promises involved in this. So look at number three on your outline and verse 20, where the people lament, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Who is this talking about? It's talking about the king, the Lord's anointed. King Zedekiah was also captured by the Babylonians. This is where I want to turn back to uh, 2 Kings 25 uh, to read the account of this. So turn with me or listen as I read the, the first uh, seven verses here of 2 Kings 25. This is exactly what's being lamented here in Lamentations 4.20. We read, Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the, the king's garden. 
though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Now here's what they did to King Zedekiah. They captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. That's what's being lamented here in verse 20. It points to the fact here in Lamentations 4 that this is not just the capture of another person. It's not just the capture of of a king even. He's described as the Lord's anointed. That is the Lord's Messiah, Messiah. God's appointed leader here, his, his representative. He's even called here the breath of our nostrils. He, he's our life. That points to how important the king of Judah was. One, one commentator says the embodiment of the life and vitality of the people. Why was the, why was the king so important in that way? Well, it's because all of God's promises to Israel, to the church, were bound up in the line of David. In, in the Davidic kings, and, and, and in a final and great Savior and Messiah King who is going to come from that line. This, these promises go back to 2 Samuel 7, for example, where God promises to David that his throne would last forever, that a, one who would be a son of God would sit on his throne and rule forever. Now, Psalm 89, for example, references these promises His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness. All of this would come through David. And so the the capture and and, um, at least near killing of of the last person in the house of David, assuming that he'll, he'll die... And all of his sons, more particularly, more, more importantly, and that was intentional by the Babylonians, they were trying to wipe out his whole family. There would be no one for the people to rally around. Now, this was the greatest tragedy possible because it was so important in, in, within the promises of God. And so it seemed, this event seemed to cancel the promises of God, the long and great hopes of Israel. And implicit here, again, I think in verse 20 then, is the question, are the promises of God failed? Has, has God given up on the plan? Has he given up on his people completely? If David's line has been wiped out. Well, what was the reality? This, this was the fear at this point in the story. What was the reality? The reality was that God was invisibly at work keeping his promise. And here's where I want to turn back to the account that Second Kings give us. A grandson of King Josiah uh, had been carried off to Babylon before, and the Babylonians kept him alive. Uh, his name's Jehoiakim, or he's also called Jeconiah in the Bible. So Jeho- Jehoiakim, Jeconiah. Uh, and, and turn with me back again to Second, Second Kings 25. I want to read uh, how this book ends. Hangs on this this sort of cliffhanger of hope uh, in the midst of dire circumstances because of this Jeconiah who was kept alive. So beginning in verse 27. 
Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That's a generous title. He was just a prisoner uh, in, in Babylon, uh, but he was a descendant of David. Uh, in the 12th month, in the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year he became king, released Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So incredibly, ironically, the Babylonians, who had evidently destroyed the line of David and the king and all of his sons, God used them to preserve the line of David. And and Jehoiakim is even released in Babylon. And he's treated kindly. He's treated richly. He's given authority and a place in the king's palace. Inexplicably, all of this. There's no reason given for it in 2 Kings 25 that he's treated this way, uh, aside from God's grace. And uh, Jehoiakim's son, then, is, is Shealtiel. Shealtiel's son is Zerubbabel, name you may know as the one who led the exiles then many years back, many years later, <clears throat> led the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild. Uh, and all of these guys, Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zerubbabel, are then listed in the genealogy of Jesus as the book of Matthew begins. And so in this passage, we see a great test of the faith of the people of Jerusalem. When all seemed lost, when they were tempted to think that the promises of God perhaps had failed. That's what it appeared like. Would they trust that God is always faithful to his promises, that God was at work, uh, even in tragedy, even if they couldn't possibly see it themselves? And that's the challenge I want to put before you uh, in the final point in your outline this morning, looking at number four. Will you trust that God is always at work in your life, in the world, despite what you see? That God brings hope out of tragedy. He brings gain out of loss. He brings life even out of death. And I want to make an application more specifically connected to this passage. One of the things that can um, challenge that the greatest, most deeply hurt the people of God is when people act badly in the church. Right, especially when leaders mislead or abuse their authority or, or fail in big ways that the trust that people put in them, the calling that God places on them. And I don't want to say, but need to say, I, I can't guarantee that that won't happen here. I hope that's not so. We need to pray and to guard against that in every way, but, but we can't guarantee that the leadership here will always be faithful and humble and servant shepherds in every way. But your faith is not in them. Your faith is not in the church in and of itself. I, I can guarantee you will see disappointing, maybe very hurtful things in the church in your life. I, I met a guy a couple weeks ago at, at Brewing Market uh, named Tim. And Tim had a story that many people had. He, he came to be disappointed in the church and hurt uh, the church as, as an organization. He left it to this point permanently. He didn't seem to have left the faith, but 
but some do. Some say these leaders have hurt me. The church must be inherently bad. Or these leaders have hurt me. The gospel must not be true. And these responses, I think, reveal misdirected faith. The church is not and will not be perfect. Uh, None of us are, and that's not to excuse bad behavior or to downplay the hurt uh, and real serious harm that has been done in the church. Uh, You may need to leave a particular church. Uh, Leaders may need to be disciplined, even condemned. But in those circumstances, you, like Jerusalem, are being challenged to believe that God is still at work in his church. God is working to the end of his promises. The the church is not a human institution or invention. The the institutional church that that gathers, that's led by elders and served by deacons and gathers for worship and so on, is the church of Jesus Christ. It's the body of Christ, the household of God. These are biblical phrases. It's designed by God himself, even though it's full of sinners. And where, where it fails, it will be rebuilt by him. And where, it's, where there's hurting, it will be healed by him. Uh, Jesus promises, I will build my church. And we'll be tested to, to believe that. One of the biggest themes of the Old Testament is what? It's, it's the failure of Israel's prophets and priests and kings. And these three offices that were established by God's uh, appointment for his institutional church. They're the same ones mentioned in this passage. It's the prophets, the priests, and the king that failed. But this just serves to highlight over and over again, and again here, the need for a final and perfect and righteous prophet and priest and king to come. That's what we have in the Lord Jesus. Reflecting on this, the, the suffering of the people here in this passage, Christopher Wright, commentator, asked this question. He says, does the sequence here of of being hunted and trapped in a pit and facing an inescapable inescapable end jog our memories? He notes that was precisely the experience recounted by the man in chapter 3. If you were here back when we studied chapter 3 together, we saw it was all about, and it began with the man. Suddenly, everything is about this one person, this one person's suffering. We saw his ridicule and his suffering in the place of others and, and, and his death and his evident resurrection pointing to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah who had come not just as, as a better prophet or king preaching and ruling, but come first to suffer once for all for our sins. And the greatest example of what we're talking about here, the the need to trust the promises of God despite what we see, even in the church, when all seems lost, is the cross. What could possibly appear more like God's plan has been wrecked, like, like God's plan is over than the death of the Son of God? And doubtless that was the conclusion of, of many of Jesus' disciples. Jesus died and they were despairing. And yet through deep and incredible ironies, the worst event in all of history was at the same time the faithfulness and grace of God. It was the best event in all of history. And so again, will you trust that God, that this God is at work in your life in this world despite what you see? 
that he brings hope out of tragedy, even life out of death. Will you continue to seek him and believe him? Even when you meet harm, harmful, hurtful things, will you continue to live and strive with the very imperfect body of believers, the body of Christ? If your faith is, is really focused on God himself and God alone, then when we are hurt and disappointed, even in the church, we can confess together uh, with lamentations that the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you again this week for your word. Uh, a, a difficult word again here in, in Lamentations uh, for uh, lamenting sin and uh, this necessary judgment, uh, but pointing us so clearly to the hope that is found in Christ um, and to your great faithfulness. And so we thank you for these reminders. We pray that you would teach us uh, to trust more fully uh, in your promises, despite uh, what we see at times. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.